0: A volcanic discovery sheds light on the mysteries of Venus, this week on Planetary Radio. I'm Sarah Al-Ahmed of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Is Venus hiding volcanic secrets beneath its shroud of clouds? Robbie Herrick and Scott Hensley, the minds behind a new paper on recent potential volcanic activity on Venus, join us to discuss their discovery. Then we turn to the night sky with our resident stargazer, Bruce Betts, as he brings us the latest celestial updates and tests your space knowledge in our ever-popular space trivia contest. We have some exciting news from the world of space exploration. A recent analysis of a small sample from asteroid Ryugu, which was brought back to Earth by Japan's Hayabusa2 mission in 2020, has revealed the presence of uracil, one of the four essential building blocks of RNA. The sample also contains complex organic molecules that are crucial for life as we understand it. This new data puts us closer to understanding the potential role that asteroids may have played in the origins of life on our planet. We'll learn even more later this year with the return of NASA's OSIRIS-REx spacecraft, which is currently en route back to Earth from another asteroid carrying even more samples. The James Webb Space Telescope has made a really cool observation while studying the atmosphere of an exoplanet located 40 light-years away from Earth. This intriguing planet known as VHS-1256 b orbits not one, but two stars. It orbits about four times further out from its stars than Pluto orbits around our Sun. JWST detected an array of molecules in this planet's atmosphere, including silicate dust grains, water, methane, carbon monoxide, and carbon dioxide. This discovery marks the largest number of molecules ever identified simultaneously on a planet outside of our solar system. It's an extraordinary achievement that really underscores the potential of JWST to revolutionize our understanding of distant worlds. A recent study has created a detailed map of the water distribution near the lunar South Pole, thanks to data from the now-retired Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy, or SOFIA mission. RIP SOFIA. Researchers have discovered that most of the water around the Moon's South Pole exists as ice, hiding in the shadows of craters where temperatures are even colder than the average lows on the lunar nightside. It's going to get really interesting when the next generation of upcoming lunar rovers begins exploring that region in earnest. And if you're as excited about humans returning to the Moon as we are, you'll be thrilled to hear that the Artemis II rocket is making significant progress. Teams at NASA's Michoud Assembly Facility in New Orleans have successfully integrated the major structures of the Space Launch System rocket's core stage for the upcoming Artemis II mission. Scheduled for November 2024, Artemis II will send four astronauts on a journey around the moon. This mission is a precursor to the next series of crewed moon landings. I know I've said this before, but I'm so excited that humans are returning to the moon in my lifetime. You can learn more about these and other stories in the March 24th edition of our weekly newsletter, The Downlink. Read it or subscribe to have it sent to your inbox for free every Friday at planetary.org downlink. We have a truly fascinating interview lined up for you as we explore the recent discovery of potential signs of active volcanism on Venus. If confirmed, this finding supports long-held suspicions that the volcanic activity on our neighboring planet is still ongoing today. Venus is about 80% covered in volcanic rock and bears the scars of past eruptions, so it wouldn't be too surprising. The evidence stems from data collected by NASA's Magellan spacecraft, the last NASA mission to visit that world. It orbited Venus from 1990 to 1994. Two radar images captured in 1991, just eight months apart, show a volcanic vent transforming from a circular depression into a larger kidney shape a change that researchers interpret as a sign of active volcanism. Our guests this week, Doctors Robbie Herrick and Scott Hensley, recently published these findings in the Journal of Science in a paper called Surface Changes Observed on a Venusian Volcano During the Magellan Mission. They join us this week to delve into the implications of this finding as scientists continue to unravel the mystery of how Venus transformed from a potentially habitable world into the inhospitable hellscape we see today. Robbie Herrick is a research professor at the Geophysical Institute at the University of Alaska Fairbanks in, you guessed it, Fairbanks, Alaska, USA. With a keen focus on planetary science, Robbie has dedicated his career to studying the geological processes shaping various celestial bodies, including the mysterious planet of Venus. Our other guest, Scott Hensley, is a senior research scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California. His impressive background in radar remote sensing and a deep understanding of Earth and planetary sciences made him an excellent collaborator on this paper. Both Robbie and Scott have been crucial to past and future missions of Venus, including NASA's Magellan spacecraft. Hi, Robbie and Scott. Thanks for joining me on Planetary Radio.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: Nice to be here. So... You've just released a new paper that's about surface changes on Venus, and it's gotten a lot of attention among the planetary science community. There have been many missions to Venus. In the context of all of that, why is your discovery so exciting?
2: There's been some evidence uh, and indications that Venus is still active, but they're indirect. So they're ones that depend upon chemical reactions in the atmosphere. Usually there are multiple pathways that similar chemical reactions can occur. One of them would indicate volcanism. Other pathways would indicate something else. There have been thermal anomalies on the surface, again, but some of these things, uh, how recent they were, is is not as clear as with our result. Our result is a visual indication of something of actually changing on the surface, and we can actually say within an eighth-month period, exactly when it occurred 30 years ago. So it is really the smoking gun evidence of activity on the surface. Where the other ones were indications this is not just an indication, it is there is activity on Venus right now.
0: Just so exciting. People have been really curious about Venus for ages, but it continues to make our life really hard as we try to research it. it. There's so many secrets we can't get to. Why is Venus such a challenging place to research? And why is there so much disagreement in predictions on volcanic activity on this planet?
1: It's particularly challenging to study from the surface simply because the temperature is I think around 850 Fahrenheit 450 C the Former Soviet Union landed a handful of landers, which lasted a maximum of a couple of hours. And and even then, it's still quite difficult to do things. And so what that has meant is that the science that has been able to be done from the surface is very limited because of your time limit. And not only is it an issue of the time on your surface, but the nature of the conditions are such that even if you can deal with keeping your instruments cool or functioning, there's also the issue of the power source and that you, if you're trying to do things right now, we don't have a setup where you could use solar power from the surface and there's a whole other set of issues trying to use something like nuclear power. And so even if you can get things to survive, you're still gonna end up battery limited on doing things on the surface from orbit synthetic aperture radar can see through the clouds without a problem and so that's a great tool a whole bunch of other stuff has a lot of problems seeing through the atmosphere you know if you look at venus through a telescope it looks like a fairly featureless yellow blob and uh, if you fly right I and mean, put yourself right in orbit around it, it will still look like a featureless yellow blob, right? in visible light. And then even in kind of uh, shorter wavelengths than radar where you can partially see through the clouds that very dense atmosphere is refracting a lot of the light and dispersing it. And so even though, for instance, there's, there's a window where you can see through the atmosphere in the infrared, that scattering of light by the dense atmosphere makes the resolution that you can get very low. You do have some options for say floating around in the clouds at maybe 30 or 40 kilometers up where it's other than having sulfuric acid in the in the atmosphere uh, which is not too terribly difficult to deal with. But, you know, getting a, a balloon into the clouds is still a major challenge. So that makes the challenges pretty acute in terms of getting there. What Magellan revealed in very short terms is that Venus, and it should be this way, Venus, because it's roughly the same size as Earth, it has a similar amount of diversity in terms of the volcanic and tectonic structures that you see. So much more so than, say, Mars or the Moon.
0: This research just kind of goes to show that past spacecraft like Magellan still have a lot to teach us about our solar system. Robbie, you know, trying to find a feature like this on Venus is like looking for a needle in a haystack. So, how did you go about narrowing down your search for features like this?
1: To give you a little bit of background, Magellan passed over every place on the surface of Venus during its imaging portion of its mission three times. But while it was doing that, it, the spacecraft was degrading. So, the area that it actually imaged. The second time it ran around, it got about 35% of the planet, or so, and then about 15% the, the third time around. And each of those was done with a. It, it wasn't designed to look for changes. It was done with a different imaging geometry. What I did in the search was I kind of had a, a list compiled from various sources of you know, top 50 prospects for you know change during the Magellan mission, just started going through there. Some of, in terms of looking for changes with time, some of that repeat imaging is a lot easier to work with than others and sort of like the the old story about the guy searching for his keys under a street lamp because that's where the light was good. I started in this one area that wasn't in my top 50 prospects but it was the one area on venus where two images were taken separated in time with the exact same viewing geometry and then i moved on from there to the prospects that were in the easier to work with data where i actually found something was in this area called atla regio narrowed in on the uh, place where there are the two of the large, the largest volcano on the planet in terms of height and kind of size, and uh, the number one place where you would expect to find a change is where we found a change, but it wasn't the first place I looked because it was somewhere where the images were particularly challenging to work with in terms of looking for changes. So, so that's kind of uh, how how things went overall. And like any funded scientist, once I found something, I stopped and wrote the paper, right? So there's a lot of other areas that still could be looked at and maybe have something found.
0: But you bring up a really interesting topic, which is that as Magellan was going around this planet, it's taking images, but the viewing angle is very different as it's going around, which complicates this process. And Scott, you were instrumental in taking this data And then figuring out how to glean information about it based on its different angles. So can you tell us a little bit about that process and what you did to make this data make more sense?
2: Robbie uh, sent me the imagery in in an email saying, look, Scott, I think I found change on the surface of Venus. And I was cautious about that because people had sent me things like this in the past. And every single time I was able to prove that there was nothing that changed, it was really just an imaging geometry difference from the way the sensor collected the data. But when I looked at, at, at Robbie's stuff, I was cautiously optimistic right away that he really found something. But I really wanted to make sure that th- this couldn't be confused with just, we just looked at this from two different perspectives and it just looked like something changed and something really did not. So what I did is I used some knowledge about how radar really works. In one of the images, we could get a pretty good idea of the shape that was on the surface. And we know what vents look like generally. So we can figure out basically what the topographic profile looked like. And with those two pieces of information and knowing which direction the radar was looking at the data, it's possible to simulate what the images should look like. And so what we were able to do then is we were, we took the two different imaging geometries plus our assumed shape of the crater. And then we made simulated look images that we could then compare to the real images. And we did lots of different variations of the crater shape until we found things that matched the data. There was another vent that was nearby that did, we didn't think did change at all. And we could match that up on both images very, very nicely. But we, there's nothing that we could do that would match up the images up the first time and the second time for the, for the vent that changed. Its shape was different. It was no longer round. It was kidney-shaped. The way the backscatter, how bright it looked inside the vent was totally different than the, the models. So nothing looked right. So that gave us a lot of confidence that, indeed, the vent had really changed. And we really found or Robbie's keen eye had really detected something that had changed on the surface.
0: There are many different processes that can change the surface of a planet, but why is it that this specifically suggests volcanic activity?
1: Morphologically, it's clearly a vent, although neither Scott and I are uh, what I would say true volcanologists. I in particular don't spend an enormous amount of time scrambling around on volcanoes, uh, collecting samples and things like that. So, this vent it is on top of a volcanic construct that itself is kind of off to the north of the main uh, very tip top of Mot Mons, which is this massive volcano that is like, nine kilometers high and covers an area that's uh, over a thousand kilometers across so it's clearly a product of lava erupting from. That location. In the first image, it it looks like the eruptions had ceased. So you've got sort of a circular feature with a raised rim, and inside it looks like there's steep walls and it's a few hundred meters deep. And so that looks like what you would typically see is an evacuated vent where the eruptions cease, the magma that's underneath is sort of withdrawn. In the next image, to me, it looks very similar. Typical basalt shield volcanoes where then you get a new influx of magma and in the place where you erupted before something happens you sort of subsume part of this vent structure and you end up with a lava lake we're careful in the paper though to put some caveats on there because through modeling we can demonstrate that the second image is not the same thing as the first image is different and not just attributed to the viewing geometry we do not however have enough information to definitively get the shape before and after especially in a volumetric sense and so we can't rule out the possibility that this first vent underwent some really bizarre spontaneous collapse that resulted in the second image. But on Earth, we have zero examples of a multi-kilometer change in a feature on top of a big volcano where there's a change, but no eruption takes place anywhere.
0: I'll put this question to you, Scott there are a lot of missions going to venus right now you know we've got the indian space research organization the european space agency nasa all of them sending basically a fleet to venus we even have private missions on the way to venus right now so this finding comes at a really opportune time would you have any advice for the people that are planning these missions which includes you to take this information into account that might change the way that they design or plan these missions
2: well we should be very careful these missions going to Venus, some of them have some of the same instrumentation and some of them have very different instrumentation. So the ones that have a chance of seeing the surface have radars because of the thick cloud surface. And there's four missions that I'm aware of that are thinking about having radars. There's the ESA mission, the NASA mission, the Indian mission, and the Chinese have also proposed a mission to go to Venus, all with synthetic aperture radars. And if you really want to look for change on the surface, the number one piece of advice that I have is you have to have similar look geometry as you can between the different observations, because that's what makes the job a lot easier. I want to emphasize how hard the job Robbie had to do was. Looking for changes in the data where it's coming from these different viewing geometries, from opposite look directions the way we, we did, is something that only can be done by a human. We can't even train a computer algorithm to do this reliably. And a lot of the image looks different. There were a lot of things that look different in that image, but only the one thing really changed. So in order to, for this process to potentially be automated, and so we can really look at the whole surface of Venus, you really want to change the sensor viewing geometry so that it's consistently the same. And then you have a chance to automate that process and look at wide areas of Venus and look for changes in a systematic way.
0: Well, it's gonna be really exciting. There's a lot of things coming out about Venus and it's just gonna get better. So if you ever come up with some really excellent new data on this, if you find some really cool new caldera or vent out there, please let me know because I would love to share it with everyone. Be
2: happy to do so, Sarah.
0: Well, thank you both so much for joining me on the show. And I think you've blown a lot of people's minds with this one. So we've all got a lot to look forward to in the future. And thanks for joining me.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: You know, every so often, I like to pull up the only images ever captured from the surface of Venus, which were taken by Russia's Venera missions in the 1970s and 80s. I try to imagine what it must be like to be there in this moment. That cracked ground. The acidic yellow sky. Not to mention the catastrophic pressures and face-melting temperatures. There's so much that we don't know about that place, despite it being so close, cosmically speaking. It's exciting to think about what we might discover in the next decades as more missions from around the world visit our planetary neighbor. You can hear the extended version of my interview with Robbie Herrick and Scott Hensley in the podcast and online version of this show at planetary.org radio or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. We'll be right back for What's Up after a short break. Hi, this is Kate from the Planetary Society. How does space spark your creativity? We want to hear from you. Whether you make cosmic art, take photos through a telescope, write haikus about the planets, or invent space games for your family— Really, any creative activity that's space related. We invite you to share it with us. You can add your work to our collection by emailing it to us at connectplanetary.org. That's connectplanetary.org. Thanks! Ready to level up your space game? Hi, I'm Amber, Digital Community Manager for
2: the Planetary Society, and we are launching our brand new digital member community. This is a place that's built exclusively for Planetary Society members. Here, you can connect with fellow members from around the world, join live events you won't get anywhere else, and delve deeper into the wonders of our cosmos and the missions that explore them. It's all about putting the Society in the Planetary Society. I'll see you on the digital frontier.
0: Now let's check in with Bruce Betts, the Chief Scientist of the Planetary Society for What's Up. Sup, Bruce?
3: Yes, that is the name of the segment, Sarah, although you seem to have conflated the words together. What's up?
0: Sup. I stand by it. But, you know, I had all these grand plans to actually escape my gamer den after recovering from COVID, go outside, take a look up at Venus, you know, maybe think about volcanoes or something, and then just torrential rain. So I've not been able to go outside and see the beautiful sky in quite a while. But, you know, if I do go out this week, hopefully it won't rain as hard. There are
3: probably people who can see the sky. And for those people, Venus, easiest thing you can see over there in the West, super bright. Looking fun, looking fabulous. If you look up high, you can see Mars. And Mars and, uh, and like, Orion and Taurus, Registrar, Aldebaran, they've been hanging out for a few months together. Yeah, they're done. They're growing apart over the next few weeks.
0: They're growing apart.
3: And and as a result, Mars is dimming. No, I, I mean, it's related, but that's not actually. Like. Mars <laughs> is getting farther away from the Earth, and so I've been saying it's been dimming, but it really will Significantly, and right now Aldebaran is brighter. this is for those who want to play with reddish stars in the sky and their brightness, Aldebaran has been the dimmer one, but now it's a little bit brighter. Mars will keep fading as it runs away. Don't worry, everyone, it'll be back every 26 months like clockwork, whether we want it to or not. All right, uh, pre dawn, pre dawn, people, Saturn go out there, check it out in the, the pre dawn east. And back to those constellations, we're, we're going to have Orion and the, and the gang running away pretty soon. So check them out, getting lower in the sky, moving towards the west as the weeks go on.
0: Yeah, it's that moment when, uh, you know, winter up here in the north ends, spring rolls on in, and Orion just runs away.
3: If we move on to this week in space history, it was 1974 that Mariner 10 did its first flyby of Mercury, giving us our first spacecraft view of Mercury. And it would do a couple more flybys, and we'd image more than 50%, and then wait till 2008 for Messenger to capture the rest of it. Turns out it's gray and covered in craters. Shall I move on?
0: Let's do the thing.
3: Random Space (laughs) Facts. It's kind of not a normal random space fact, but then I thought about it, and it's a fact, and it happened in space, and it is quite random. I just thought it was a neat story, which is uh, from an article that Astronaut Tom Jones wrote uh, interviewing Bob Stewart, the astronaut. Bob Stewart, who is the second astronaut to fly untethered in space, so you have the iconic Bruce McCandless picture floating over the Earth in the man maneuvering unit, and we'll get back to that. Dun dun dun. Uh, but Bob Stewart then did the second flight. He thought, "What would it be like to be the only person in the universe?" So he turned himself to where he couldn't see the Earth, the Moon, or the Sun. Only the blackness of space. I only lasted 15 seconds and I thought, well, let's just turn around and make sure everything's still there.
0: That sounds horrifying. As much as I want to go (laughs) to space, like floating, untethered in space, staring into the darkness, the vast expanse, uh, that's horrifying.
3: (laughs) You conjured quite a a vision, so I thought I would share. (laughs) But now we will move on to the trivia contest. And I asked you. Name all the countries whose national flag has some representation of the Southern Cross asterism that is part of the Crux constellation. how do we do with this one?
0: Oh, the beautiful Southern Cross. Yeah, we, we got a lot of answers from all over the world on this one. The dice have spoken. And Allison Benfield from Charleston, <laughs> South Carolina, USA is our winner. And the answer is Australia, New Zealand, Papua New Guinea, Samoa, and Brazil. So no surprise there. Countries that can actually see the Southern Cross. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
3: oh! I get it now.
0: Yeah, but I loved actually this. This made me really happy because every so often people say in the comments like, "I've never won. I wish I could win this contest." Well, uh, Allison wrote in and said, "I have terrible luck when it comes to winning this contest, and perhaps the odds." will be in her favor this time. So I would like to tell you, Allison, the odds are ever in your favor and you got it this time. (laughs) The
3: dice have spoken. Yep. that's cool. Congratulations. Going back to flying around tetherless in space, who took the iconic picture of Bruce McCandless floating untethered over the Earth during the first flight of the man maneuvering unit? Who was the photographer? Go to planetary.org slash radio
0: contest. I imagine it was someone having a deep existential crisis uh, because that image terrifies and amazes me. Everybody out there, you have until April 5th at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us your answer. And whoever wins this will be the lucky winner of another Goodnight Oppie Thermal Mug. We keep getting people who want another chance to win that. So we'll be giving out another Goodnight Oppie Thermal Mug. And of course, Goodnight Oppie is a lovely documentary about the Opportunity Rover on Mars. So, Here's your chance, fam. We got you.
3: <laughs> cool. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky and think about looking out into the night sky and try not to have an existential crisis. Thank you and good night.
0: We've reached the end of this week's episode of Planetary Radio, but we'll be back next week to celebrate two years of the Emirates Hope mission to Mars with Mohsen al-Awadhi. Director of the Space Missions Department of the UAE Space Agency. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by our Venusian volcano-loving members. Mark Hilverta and Ray Pauletta are our associate producers. Andrew Lucas is our audio editor. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which was arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. And until next week... Ad Astra.